Every night there, I'm like, you know what? If I'm here, I'm making the most of this trip. Like I'm not wasting a second. I'm, I'm grinding it out. I'm going to every event. Like I'm like, I don't care nonstop. And I, uh, like I just go to sleep with my head literally against window and there'd be like, no, not, not a word of lie, drunk junkies outside the window yelling at each other all night long. Welcome to Montreal Startups, a show where we cover local, innovative, fast-growing companies and the inspiring stories behind them. On today's show, we talk to Phil Cutler, co-founder and CEO of award-winning personalized learning platform, Gradeslide. If you didn't use a personal tutor during your academic career, you probably know someone who did. It would usually happen on nights or weekends. You would meet up with your tutor to who you could ask any question you want and could identify areas where you struggled academically. Personal tutors are not cheap, and those who were privileged of having access to one had a significant learning advantage over those who didn't, which leads to an unbalanced playing field among students. And as you could probably guess, parents who could afford personal tutors, on average, see their kids get higher marks and perform better than those who can't. And this unfair concept didn't sit well with Phil, a McGill education graduate and teacher. His thought, personalized learning should be convenient and equally accessible for all students. Democratizing education is how he frames it. Now this all sounds nice and warming, but where does one begin the process of democratizing education? Maybe you create your own one-on-one virtual tutoring platform. And maybe that platform has qualified teachers who are available to students 24-7 at no cost. And just maybe, all this is as simple as sending a text on your phone. This is a vision that began unraveling for Great Slam co-founders Phil and Roberto. However, free, personalized, one-on-one tutoring through your iPhone? Not an easy sell back in 2013. A free piece of advice though, never tell a highly competitive and driven athlete that something can't be done. I definitely grew up in a home that was... um, I'd say pretty competitive. Uh, my parents were athletes. They liked being active. Um, neither of them really had jobs. They were both entrepreneurial. So I think that that definitely, from an early age, was pretty interesting. You know, I'd have like a, a hockey game at school at three o'clock, and my parents would be at the game. You know, and they'd be the only ones there. I'm like in fifth grade. Um, that was pretty interesting. You mentioned your parents were entrepreneurs. What, what did they do, or what do they do now? So my father was a real estate developer. He was always uh, quite analytical, or is quite analytical, still involved um, in real estate development. But uh, meanwhile, my mother, uh, she was, ran an art gallery um, and sort of art dealer, um, which was something she was quite passionate about. Prior to having me as a child, she ran her own uh, store. And so she's always been entrepreneurial as well. So that intertwined entrepreneurship in, in your mind from a very young age. Yeah, uh, I mean, everyone in my family, I would say, has been entrepreneurial to some degree. Uh, my grandmother, who I was quite close with, she had started her own publishing house here in, in Montreal, uh, eventually became mayor of Westmount, which got me into politics, and that might be something we want to discuss mm-hmm. later on, too. That's a whole other can of worms, but uh, I think most of my life I was exposed to, to entrepreneurship, even as a child. Um, you know, I remember my sister and I, wanted to start a newspaper when we were little. And and we always had these ideas of businesses that we could run. And as soon as I was in high school, I started doing all the typical stuff that um, the high school students would do. You know, we were, I think, in grade seven, would buy candy at uh, at Costco and then sell it 
you know, buy the buy the bag uh, to my friends. And then we did some, I sold uh, CDs that I would burn for, for my friends. So they would send me a list of their songs and I went out and bought a CD. Um, I don't even know what they are called, but you know, you could burner. Uh, yeah, yeah burner. burner on your computer. So we would, so I bought one of those for like $200 and <laughs> I would charge, I think it was like five or $10 per CD. And I would burn those for my friends, um, you know, and charge, you know, charge them, you know, 10 X what I was paying for, for each one of them. And, and, you know, came up with these, these different things I was doing. You are pretty involved in sports from, from what I understand. What was that experience like, uh, especially playing for the McGill Redman? Yeah, I think you know you can ask any of our employees here at Grade Slam. I'm super guilty of using sports and sports analogies ad nauseum, like to the point where they're probably sick of hearing it. But to me, that was my experience growing up was um, getting feedback from coaches. You know, I, I'm a very coachable individual. This is something that I think has led me to uh, to, to understanding and being pretty self aware of the mistakes and faults that I have. And and you're just highlighting all the similar similarities between uh, sports and and business, right? Like there's so much overlap between what you experience in sports, teamwork, leadership, things like that. Um, and I, like you said, you draw on a lot of that now in your in, in grade slam. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, uh, I'd say a lot of what we've been able to achieve here has been similar to a team winning a championship in sports or working towards winning yeah. a championship. So you graduate from McGill uh, in education. What happens next? What's your next move? So I was in university for six years. I was in a four-year program. I actually started at Concordia, um, did a year and a half there. Uh, what were you per- studying there at Concordia? I studied human environment. So something I was always really interested in, uh, and it, I actually really enjoyed the courses I was taking. I didn't really see myself pursuing a career in that longer term. I'm, uh, I always enjoy sort of working with kids and being involved in education. Like this was something that was important to me. Did you, did you want to be a gym teacher naturally from? So that's a good question. Uh, everyone thought I was a gym teacher. Yeah. So I actually studied. You look like a gym teacher. <laughs> well, I, that, that's probably a compliment. I don't know. Um, it, yeah. So I, I, I didn't actually want to be a gym teacher. Uh, I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. And so it was a very unique experience. I have made uh, some of my my best friends during that program, um, who I'm still in touch with today. Uh, one of them married one of my other best friends. So it's sort of a uh, uh, um, you know it, it was a positive experience on the whole, but definitely quite unique and different from most people's education, I would say. Uh, but yeah, so I wanted to be an elementary school teacher, and quickly realized that I think the bureaucracy and red tape that exists in the education system. It was not designed for the creative, um, I would say, entrepreneurial spirit that I had. So I remember distinctly, it was my second year, and we were doing our placement. And I think I wanted to take oh, the students the across the street or something. Right. You know, it was a very small outing, and they're like, "You're not allowed to do that. That's you know, that's 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 against the rules of the school." And I said, "Well, why?" And they didn't really have a good reason. They just sort of said, "Well, that's." You know, because right, and that's the way things are, and it's the way they've always been. And I, I sort of thought about it, and I was like, well, that's not a good enough answer. So I actually was so upset uh, about this that I decided I was like, I'm going to start my own school, and uh, I'm going to do things my way, and no one's going to tell me how what I can and can't do. That's not ambitious at all. Yeah, I was maybe a little overly ambitious, um, but what I recognized was 
A, you can't really just start your own school, but what you can do is start a summer camp. What's it called, this summer it's, camp? It's uh, Loris Summer Camp, L-A-U-R-U-S, and uh, Loris is, is Latin for success. So the, the view is always, you know, we want to we want to be pushing students to be successful at everything that they do, um, and so that was sort of my first jump into uh, to to running a, a real business. Prior to that, uh, or alongside that, I was also running an in-home tutoring business. So one day I get a phone call, and it's a movie production that needs a tutor the next day for the set of their movie. And so I knew nothing about onset tutoring, but I said, I turned around, I was like, yeah, absolutely do this all the time. No problem. So I spend the whole night looking online as to like how this works. Where do you show up? I don't, I've never been on a movie set in my life, right? I don't know what I'm expecting. Uh, so I show up and, um, go on, on set and I'm like, okay, like I'm here, let's do this. And they're like, oh, well you actually just have to wait around until the student needs you. So I was like, seriously? And so, okay. So I'm sitting around, they have the, you know, the, the, the mess truck where you can go get food and, um, and sort of just like watching this movie be filmed. And it was, it was a huge Hollywood production here in Montreal. And it was like, uh, do you remember the movie? Um, it was, ah, God, um, <laughs> it was like, it was like the remake of 300. I want to say, um, I can't remember the name of it exactly. I could look it up after, but it was, um, it was, it was one of these sort of like, uh, you know, ancient times and the battles and it was a really cool set. And I sit there for eight hours during the day and I think I taught this student for about five minutes because he was filming and I get paid my eight hours. I'm like, oh, it's a pretty good gig. And they're like, can you come back tomorrow? I was like, yeah, absolutely. So the student is obviously an actor in the movie that doesn't have time to go to school himself. Exactly. And, and you just get to sit around and, and what were you teaching him? Nothing. <laughs> I just literally was watching them film this movie. Okay. And uh, I mean, we, he would come for, I'm not joking, five minute periods of time to, you know, to ask me some questions and then he would get called back on the set. Like I was doing nothing. And I was like, this is a pretty interesting gig. So, um, you know, got close with his family and then the family of some of the other actors on set. And actually that's how we got our first clients. So they were the first people to actually start using Loris Educational Services for the in-home tutoring that it was. Uh, but I thought, hey, this is amazing business. I, you know, I want to double down on this. Um, and I ended up actually doing, I've probably done a dozen movies or so at this point. Uh, worked on uh, a couple big ones um, that were you know, being filmed in Montreal, American actors and actresses that were coming into town. We kind of became known as the go-to service for them. Um, but any, was, any big names you could drop here? Um, God. Well, so Rob Naylor, uh, he's from Montreal. He's actually pretty well known. He's been very, very successful. He's an artist. He's a, uh, a DJ, obviously actor. Um, and so he, uh, he was one of the first ones. Um, it was a fun experience. Like overall, I think you know all the tutors appreciated it, and we've even done some some recent movies as well. Uh, but that was sort of an aside. And I think you know the the point in all this is that education can kind of take you anywhere. And uh, I realized that, and I was like, okay, there's a lot of opportunity in this industry. So I, I figured that out pretty early on, and I was like, all right, you know, this is some. Like, I see myself being successful in this industry. I don't know what it's going to be specifically, but there's opportunity here. There's room for innovation in, in the education space. Big time. Right. So you're running Loris Education, Loris Summer Camp Services. Uh, what's your next move? Yeah, so did that um, until I graduated. Uh, and then when I graduated, 
I, um, I, like you have that sort of like moment or epiphany when you're like walking across the stage to get your diploma and you're like, oh man, like what happens next, you know? Uh, and so, yeah, I graduated, um, that summer we would have been, I guess our third summer of the camp. So it was really starting to, to get some traction and scale, uh, that went really well. Um, I saw a huge potential in that business. Um, and I kind of had to decide like, you know, am I going to teach and is teaching what I'm going to do full time? And at that point I had done some teaching contracts, uh, with schools while I was still uh, a student. So I had a pretty good understanding of what that lifestyle was. And I, I knew pretty concretely that this was not what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Uh, despite the fact that I enjoyed teaching, I thought I was sort of covering those bases with, uh, with the camp and, and what we had built there. Um, and so like every university graduate who's politically informed, I decided to get into politics. Um, so completely switched gears from entrepreneurship to um being elected as a city councilor. City council had often been, you know, um, you know, much older, typically either retired or near retirement aged individuals who would sit around and make decisions for everybody. With their own way of thinking that is obviously different from from others. Yeah. From younger I, I people. think they it was a, a very um, you know homogeneous way of of viewing things, right? And I think it was important to throw kind of a, a new opinion into the mix. So I got involved, ended up uh, getting elected, and really the whole premise of our campaign was very straightforward. We looked at the number of electors in our district. We said, okay, you know, assume that we can get you know a decent amount of votes just you know from going door to door. But if we can get like twenty percent of the people under thirty to vote. We're going to win this by landslide. So made a list of everybody. So you have your elector list, like you know who's in the district. And we just looked at the names and we figured out, you know, whether it's through Instagram or Facebook, how we are connected to everybody. We said, okay, let's get these people out to vote. Like, let's show them that, hey, there's going to be a younger voice on council. And we did that and we crushed it. Um, I think I ended up winning. I had, I think it was a... a two ticket race or three ticket race, but I ended up with like 67% of the vote, which was pretty substantial. And wow. I, I was pretty happy. It was definitely a surprise. Uh, Must've been a surprise to some of the older guys. Oh, they were shocked. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was getting calls, uh, even up to a week or so before the election telling me to withdraw. You know, that time of year it's fall, it's autumn and it's, it's getting cold out and you're going door to door. And all I was thinking about was like, Oh man, you know, the other people who are running, there's no way they have the energy and stamina to do this, but I'm young but and I can't. I knocked on every single door. Uh, and I think that that's ultimately what led to it. And so, um, you know, meanwhile, like the, the, as soon as they, the final ballots counted, they announced the results at City Hall and then everything. So anyway, I wasn't there for all that. I was at home waiting, you know, because I just, I, I didn't know if I'd win or lose and didn't want to be in the public eye. And so, Last scrutineer comes back and says, oh, you won the advanced poll by like 75 votes or something. And I was like, really? So then we tabulated it. And anyway, anyway this is a huge celebration, right. really happy. And by the time I get to City Hall, everyone's gone. Right. <laughs> they didn't want to face you. I mean, I don't know what it was. We sort of showed up and uh, everyone had taken off. But um, So, so what, what was that whole experience like for you? And how did that pave the way to your entrepreneurial so it, it definitely did. I think it taught me something really interesting was that, you know, there is definitely a changing tide 
when it came to like the generations and, and how things are, are, are evolving, right? Um, typically, young people were not involved in politics, right? And if you look, you know, today, um, you know, we have a, a large number, I'd say, of young elected officials, whether it's municipal, provincial, or federal government here in Canada. Uh, what that also means, though, for entrepreneurship is that the world is prepared for innovation, we're seeing huge shifts, right? We're seeing the mindset change. We're seeing uh, you know, superintendents or principals that have been in these positions for 25 and 30 years retiring. And there's some 27-year-old or 30-year-old teacher who's moved, in, who's moved up into this administrative role. And that person is prepared to, to take chances, to try new things. And what Grade Slam is building and what we're, you know, the, the transformation that we're guiding and really driving um, requires that mindset. So that that helped pave the way for your next move, which was, I assume, to start getting into grade slime here. Yeah. So to to keep you up to date on the timeline, so I graduate. Uh, so I started the camp 2012, I guess. Graduated 2013. Uh, was elected in November 2013, and then launched Grade Slam April 2014. So I said, it was like a crazy couple of years. Yeah, it was a really interesting time. I had, uh, I remember being really nervous too because I didn't really know what my life was going to be. Like you don't graduate with a plan. Some people might, I didn't. Uh, And I had no idea what to expect. And I had this fear that if I didn't just start doing things right away, that I would end up in a rut and, you know, like it's hard to get out of that. And you spend, you know, much more time trying to just get yourself back to square one. So, you come up with the concept for Great Slam. What's your first move from there? Oh man! So, if you're listening to this right now, I can tell you it's a lot more fun to be an early stage employee of a company than a founder. Like that, I've said this a million times. But if you're like hire four or five, you're in a great position because you have a lot of the upside. Yeah, the 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 upside of a growing business, potentially some equity as well. That's going to be worth quite a bit if you're successful. And you get to see the business grow. You get to take on way more responsibility than you would ever have had in a regular business. Uh, but you don't have all the downside, right? And I think a lot of people they they see the um, you know the glorified side of entrepreneurship, right? Which is the success stories, and you know we hear about the failures too. But even the failures, to a degree, are glorified. The part that's kind of missed in all this is like every other business that's just surviving. Right, it's one thing to have a great success, and it's another thing to have a huge failure. Like those are kind of interesting stories, right? And like one way or the other, it's fun to talk about or or to sort of like reminisce and be like, oh yeah, like remember that. But when you're actually in the weeds every single day and you're not succeeding and you're not failing and you're just trying to figure it out, like that's not fun. No one's having fun doing that, right? Right. And that was the case for a while. It could um, it could be a crazy place almost because you're just repeating the same thing expecting different changes sort of and yeah. the longer that goes on the harder that gets right so there's no book like you can I've read all these entrepreneurship books right and there's no book that really kind of can nail this you got to experience it right and I tell people this all the time too if you can participate in startup competitions or try and start businesses like at least then you get some of that taste right um and I think you really need that to be able to survive in entrepreneurship. Like you have to have like had a couple kicks at the at the can before you can really nail it. So I spent, I would say, somewhere around six months convincing my co-founder to co-found the company with me. Um, that's always the hardest part. 
If you can't convince somebody to be your co-founder, right, and to start the business with you and go down this journey, you have no chance of, of convincing investors and customers to buy your product. And so that so, should be your first red flag right there. you got to be able to get a co-founder. Right. You have to. And so uh, Roberto is my, uh, is my co-founder, and he's been... So he actually developed the software that we used for booking our tutoring sessions at Loris Educational Services like several years earlier. And so he, super bright guy, um, had chosen to go into academia and hated it, or didn't hate it, but it wasn't necessarily his cup of tea longer term. I can't speak for him, but um, having you know seen him now, I know his mind is, he, he's an entrepreneur as well. And so I had to convince him to essentially leave academia. He was a freelance developer. So I said, drop all your clients as a freelancer, you know, my business as one of those clients, um, and work for GradeSlam full time. And that is not an easy conversation. Not an easy sell. Yeah. And it took months and months of back and forth. And, and I think he, from day one, was 100% sold on the concept. So what is the concept at this point? What are you pitching to oh, Roberto? Man. So back then, the idea, the North Star of Grade Slam has always remained the exact same. Right. The idea was we want to democratize education. Right. We want to level the playing field for all students. We want everybody to be able to have the same equitable learning experience. So when we started, the idea was let's look at what people were doing in the market at that moment when it came to online tutoring. And the idea was let's see what exists today and what's not working, right? And so we essentially built a really basic online tutoring marketplace. And we sort of modeled it after what was already successful in the market or quasi-successful, what existed in the market. Uh, and the idea there was just get a sense of how students are using those products and services and then get the feedback from them to hear what's not working. So we sort of built this MVP uh, and the concept back then was build by the minute vir virtual tutoring through video conferencing. And we launched it, uh, must have been November 2014, I guess. So it took a few months of development and, and testing things out. Um, and really quickly, we, you know, the idea again, the North Star is democratized. So, like everything we did, every thought that we had, had to sort of align with that. And still to this day, is that that remains the same. But we, uh, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. Um, so we tried a million things, and I think we were probably slow to iterate. Um, and we realized that students don't actually want to video conference with anyone. It's not a natural form of communication for them. So I had to go back to Roberto after he had developed all this software, the video conferencing, which we had received a grant to develop using WebRTC and HTML5. We were one of the first companies in the world to use this software in a commercial manner. So it was super innovative, um, but it was not what our customers wanted. It was not what the students wanted. They wanted to chat with somebody. They wanted to use you know, text messaging because that's how they were communicating with each other. And uh, so the business, that's how the business moved from, you know, a marketplace video conferencing to chat based. Uh, we shifted the business model away from, um, from true marketplace and we made it a subscription model where you would pay a monthly subscription to get access to 24-7 tutoring all through chat. So it's still B2C, but we were selling it to 
um, you know, so we're selling it at a price point that we felt was reasonable that could be paid for by anybody to fit into that democratizing North Star mission of yours. Exactly. Exactly. But initially, when you were on the video conferencing platform, and you're you are still under the model billing by the hour, does that? Still fit in, or what was the model there to to allow it to still democratize? So the big, so the, the big thing that we did there, there are two things that we felt were democratizing. One, it was billed by the minute, which everybody else was billing by the hour. Um, so we thought that, hey, you know, you're actually not using a tutor for the full sixty minutes. You might be using them for fifteen or twenty, and they might be sitting around for the rest. So that was part of it. The second thing was because it was delivered virtually, we felt we could reduce the cost of the tutoring. So instead of it being forty or fifty dollars an hour, we were charging like twenty or something like that. Um, so those were sort of two things. But the more important part of it was that we always looked at that business model as an experiment because that's what the other companies were doing. So we need to copy what they were doing to understand what they were doing wrong. So it was never really the long-term idea. It was really what we were using as the launch pad. Right. I see. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay, so then you, so you realize that students don't want to use video conferencing. They'd rather text with a person. Roberto must have been pretty deflated after, after hearing all that hard work. Yeah, it was not the easiest conversation we ever had. Um, I remember him sort of saying... You know, that like he worked so hard on this and, you know, what are we going to do with it? And I was like, look. It's still just you two at this point. Just in the us company, two. Right? Uh, completely bootstrapped? or Completely bootstrapped. Um, I remember or the first money we ever got was a 5000 or $6,000 grant from, um, they don't exist anymore, but they're, they're called the... Um, a CDL. It was like a Centre de Développement Local. So this was like a government organization to support entrepreneurship. And they had a young entrepreneur program where you could get $6,000, I think it was, to support your startup of business. And that was the first money we had ever received. And we felt like we just won the lottery. Like I remember holding the check and shaking. Like I was literally shaking. Uh, I didn't know what to do with all this money. And we were fortunate because I had saved money from my previous businesses and the camp actually had decent revenue so I could survive on my own. I didn't need, you know, I didn't need to take a salary, Uh, but that wasn't the case for Roberto. And so one of the the toughest parts of, of getting him on was actually making sure that we had enough money to pay him uh, at least a little bit so he could survive. Um, So we worked out of his apartment. You know, this is, you know, like from the time we started the company in, in 2014, that whole year, we were we were working out of his apartment. You know, I'd drive over there in the morning. Um, what part of the city was that in? Uh, so he was up. Uh, he was in actually a really good area for this. So he was up on Mount Royal and Park Avenue. And so there were a lot of places that we could like. We'd go for walks every day to like break because it's tough, right? You're living in your workplace. And so for him, for me, it wasn't so bad. I'd drive over in the morning, I'd park, and I'd go in. But for him, he'd literally wake up, take a shower, and he'd be in his office. Right. So it was. Um, we, we we found ways to try and like break it up a bit. We'd go for, you know go for walks. Go, we do um, a lot of the networking events in the city. So we tried to like bring ourselves into the the, the ecosystem a little bit. Uh, but again, neither of us knew anything about startups. I never even thought about being in technology. Like this was never even my idea. Um, it just sort of ended up that way as the business evolved. It became more and more tech focused. Um, I knew I needed a technical co-founder, but like. Like, like I never read TechCrunch. I didn't watch, you know, uh, the, the the tech TV shows. Like that was not me. 
um, but entrepreneurship was. And so I think nowadays it's pretty clear that the two of the two worlds between technology and entrepreneurship have basically collided. And so it's impossible not to have an element of technology in a yeah in a new business almost. Yeah, even like you look at the mattress companies and stuff now, like they're 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 tech enabled. Um, I think everything is sort of moving in that direction. Uh, but anyway, for me, it was like a totally new experience, and so uh, had had to understand that as well. But we um, so we 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 worked pretty hard to understand the customers, and that was one of the things that we had learned early on was like just listen to your customers, and they'll guide you where you need to go. So moved away from the marketplace towards this subscription model. Um, they called it the Netflix for tutoring. Which was they uh, called it? I mean, when we spoke to people, you right. know, and explained the idea, they're like, "It sounds like Netflix for tutoring." Right. Uh, and we we started to build that out, and really the 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 innovative component to what we were doing at that time was the chat based nature of GradeSlam. Right. Nobody was doing chat based tutoring. Like this was not even a concept. We were like the first people who were thinking about this, and um, everyone thought we were nuts. I remember we participated in the Dobson Cup, which is McGill's entrepreneurship competition. And I've stayed very closely involved with them. And I tell this story all the time to the new companies. But so we pitched our idea. And at this point, you know, I had my experience teaching. So standing up and pitching, and I'm not a particularly extroverted person, but standing up and pitching to me was very similar to teaching. And I had years of experience doing that. So I was super comfortable pitching to a crowd. Very natural. Uh, to me, it was not very different than teaching. I, you know, you have to convince a, a group of investors or whoever the crowd is that you have this idea that you know will be able to, you know, like like the same way you're trying to convince students to learn something, you're trying to convince the the audience to like believe in you. Um, and so I remember going to the Dobson Cup, and we're in the the semifinals or something like that, and you're pitching to the judges, and you know. They're like, you know, we're going through the, the the questions, and one of the judges just can't get over this 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 chat based tutoring component. He's like, nobody will. I'm telling you this right now. No one will ever learn through chat communication. Again, the wrong thing to say to Phil the athlete. Yeah, I mean, if anything, that set me off even harder. Exactly. Uh, and I was like, yeah, you know what? Everyone's gonna learn through chat communication. Mm-hmm. Not only, I mean, the, the one takeaway there is, you know, you, you've got these people and they mean well and they're giving you feedback, but they don't know your industry. They don't know it as well as you do. And I think that's something entrepreneurs need to understand: is you're gonna get feedback from everybody. You're gonna get feedback from your friends saying, hey, this is the greatest idea ever, and it's not awful idea. You're going to have people tell you this doesn't make any sense and realistically it's transformative. So I remember walking away from that. We didn't end up winning the competition. It was fine. I think we took away some good insights and we learned from the mentors and you know, there were a lot of positives there. But I remember distinctly being told chat-based tutoring will never work. You know, And um, then a couple weeks after that, so that was probably you know, I don't know, early 2015 or something uh, when the competition was going on. A couple weeks after that, there was a TechCrunch tech event that was taking place in Montreal where they had chosen eight companies to pitch on stage, and GradeSlam was one of them. They, they chose themselves? They chose. So you had, it was an application process, right. and um, it was organized by Nick Saltarelli, if you know Nick, great guy. Um, he's a super successful entrepreneur as well, and, and he was somebody who I was um, you know, acquainted with and um, have gotten to know really well since, but... Um, it was organized, and it was the first time that like TechCrunch was coming to Montreal, and it was this pitch competition, and it was supposed to be all exciting. And all these companies applied, and like for some random reason, like Grade Slam got selected. So I was like, awesome! Um, so we get up and we pitch the business, and everyone's like, wow, this is really smart. 
and we ended up winning. I think we got like second or third place or something. Um, and we were totally shocked because we were so out of that scene. And we were kind of like, when you're in the early stages of a business, you're always doubting yourself to some degree, but then you have these little wins. And so we were still kind of at this like hump of, well, you know, with Dobson, like we didn't win and like, are we on the right track? And then, you know, we end up winning this tech crunch thing. And we're like, okay, there's something here. And uh, right after the event, we had an investor come up to us and he said, I love what you guys are doing. Let's chat. You know, I want to invest some money. And uh, he was a pretty intense guy. Um, and he, he was an Orthodox Jew. And at that time, our offices were on the corner of Bernard and, um, and, uh, and Hutchison. So a very like ethnic area. And he, he calls us the next day. And this is right after the TechCrunch event. He calls us the next day. He says, I want to make an investment of, I can't remember the amount, but it was like $30,000. I'm coming by um, your office to give you a check. I said, how do you know where, your, where our office is? He said, ah, Hutchison and, uh, and Bernard. I know, I know your landlord. I was like, oh my goodness. So we call, I call up um, you know, a couple people. I was like, listen, this is all happening really fast. Like, I don't know what's going on. Were you right? actively looking for Not money? Not at, at all. Like, yeah. I had no idea what was happening. Um, and so, every, so I called a couple of people who had been like, advising us, and I, I didn't know what to do, right? Like, this is like, completely out of the blue. And they're like, listen, if somebody's giving you money like that out of the blue without any like, background or asking questions, don't take it. Because you're like you're putting yourself in a negative situation longer term. It might sound really interesting and appealing now, but don't, don't do it. So I had to like call this guy and be like, literally, I don't want your money. I don't um, want your $30,000. Yeah. I, and like, meanwhile, we I could use no money point. in the bank account. Right? right. You know, we, at that point we had probably gotten a couple small business loans and stuff like that. But like, you know, futurepreneur had supported us, but again, this like small amounts of money and, and, and you know, venture investment is such a like, Oh my goodness. Like you raised money that like it was a tough decision we're like what should we do and at the end of the day i was like look i i, I think if, if you want to make this investment we're getting into this partnership and we're going to grow this business for the next 10 years you can take a few weeks or a few months to sort of determine if you want to make the investment or not he's like oh i don't want that if you're not ready if you're uh, and i realized like really quickly that he had a whole other agenda for what he was doing I never knew what it was, but it was not aligned with money. what you're. Yeah. Right. Um, but it was crazy because, uh, you know, I think a lot of people would probably have just jumped at that. Right. And said, Oh my God, an angel investment. Like this is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was kind of crazy. And I remember walking away afterwards and be like, you know what? We made the right decision. Like this was smart. Like we we're, we're becoming business people. Uh, and during the same time, you know, so we had moved out of Roberto's apartment and into this little office about 100 square feet um, on Bernard and Hutchison. And uh, we were there. We, we, had, we got the landlord to agree to a month-to-month lease, which was nuts, you know. And so uh, we were renting, like, you know, I can't remember what it was. It was, like, nothing for a month, you know. We were sitting in a box. And we... Uh, during that time, we had sort of gotten more into the community here in Montreal and got to know the guys at Founder Fuel, which is an accelerator program here in Montreal. And I, um, you know, would go for coffee with them and update them from time to time. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, EdTech in the, you know, this was 2015, EdTech really had a negative connotation. Um, a lot of funds had been burnt pretty bad. And these guys were like, you know, they there was definitely support for ed tech, 
but it was not an area they were seeking out companies in. And I kind of explained, I remember this conversation um, with, they eventually invested in us, but at the time, you know, we're sort of just sort of updating each other from time to time. And uh, I remember this conversation sort of distinctly where, where I said like, yeah, but the big thing that we're doing is, is chat communication. And it was like one of the first times that someone was like, that's brilliant. And I was like, huh, they see it, you know, like most of the other people were like, I don't get it, do video conferencing, but they're like, no, no, chat makes sense. So can we, can we just go to the switch over to the platform for, for a second here? So you say chat, uh, tutoring, chat communication, um, the student is paying, the student is paying at this point, right? A monthly fee to access tutors on the platform and they communicate solely via chat. That's correct. Yeah. So, so you, I could see where they're coming from by saying this is crazy because that's a lot of work for the student. It seems insane. I mean, back then, for sure, uh, chat communication platforms had not exploded the way they have today, right? And then we're talking this is three years ago, right? It's not an enormously long period of time, but um, I think like our society now, like you can order food through Twitter, right? Like things like you don't have to interact. You don't even have to pick up the phone to call people anymore, right? right. But it sounded crazy then. It sounded crazy. Um, but they sort of saw it and um, they actually came to us and said, hey, we'd love you guys to come into Founder Fuel, which was starting in, um, which was starting in September 2015. So they, I think we got accepted you know, sometime during the summer of 2015. Um, and during that same time, I had begun um, realizing that, hey, if we want to make this successful, we need to start networking outside of Montreal, right? Like we need to start building relationships with investors in the in the valley. And I, like, you know, I remember that everyone knows this the scene in in um, social network where Justin Tim- Timberlake tells uh, tells him, you know, if you want to, if you really want to take this seriously, you need to be in the Bay Area. You know, you need to head out to to Stanford or Palo Alto. And so I was sort of like, you know what, I gotta go to SF. Like I, I'm just gonna go. And so that summer, I had booked a one-way flight to San Francisco, um, and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna like I don't know a single person there. I'm gonna look through like my like LinkedIn and Facebook to who I know in the Bay Area, and I'm just gonna start to like reach out and and I went on Meetup.com and Eventbrite and just saw events that were happening, and um, I was like, I'm gonna build a network here. And so I go, and we have no money, right? Again, like this is bootstrap startup with no cash. And we, uh, so I go by myself. Roberto came and come, right? We don't have enough money for like right. two people One to be person. traveling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, like my flight had like two connections. And it was, you know, it was like we're talking like as much of a budget trip as you can possibly have. Right. You know, looking for events that have food for free and think that type of stuff. Um, but hotels and lodging in, in San Francisco is insane. I've never been here in my life, right? I actually never been to California at this point. Um, so I can't, I don't know where I'm going to stay and I'm thinking, you know, maybe I'll stay somewhere, somewhere else in Oakland or whatever and commute. And my dad's like, no, I found this place for you. It's right downtown. It's a hundred dollars a night. I was like, okay. That's, that's pretty reasonable. And it's like, oh, but you know, but book it, book it. Like, okay. I, again, I know nothing about San Francisco, right? Um, I just know that like, this is where stuff is supposed to be happening. So we get there, show up and, um, I like, you know, I have my phone or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm walking to the area. And if you guys are familiar with San Francisco at all, but this, this, this hotel was like hardly a hotel. It was really a hostel and it was in the middle of the tenderloin. And I walk in and there's like, you know, there's junkies and there's homeless people everywhere. And I walk into this hotel and I'm like, Again, by myself, I don't know anyone in the city. 
check, it goes to check in and the way that these hotels are, so it's sort of like a ground floor check-in and then the rooms are like, you know, three, four, five stories up. They're old buildings, right? Like these are not high rise hotels. They're like, you know, they basically look like a walk up apartment in Montreal, but it's a hotel. Anyway, I go in and I'm like, yeah, I'm checking in, you know, whatever. I was like, oh, where's my room? And he's like right there. And he sort of points across the lobby to a closet. And I was sort of like looking at this guy and I'm like, uh, okay. You're mistaken. Uh, yeah. So like I open the door and I like look in and it's like, uh, it wasn't super small. I would say it was probably like 200 square feet. So it wasn't the smallest room you could ever have, but it had a bed on, on the ground. The door to the bathroom opened to the hallway, which was unlocked. Okay. So I spent every night afraid that someone was going to walk into that through, through there. And my bed was against the window, which was on the ground floor with homeless people everywhere. So I was like, what is going on here? Like, I, So you, is, you ended up staying there? I didn't have a choice. There was nowhere else to stay. I had no options. Even and I, Airbnbs? At the, yeah, uh, Airbnbs are even more expensive. Right. It was like, this is, uh, I was like, it was, not, it was not a fun moment. And I remember like calling my parents and calling Roberto and being like, yo, you don't understand where I am. Actually, I didn't call my parents. I remember distinctly not wanting to tell them because they would have been freaking out. But I remember calling Roberto like practically in tears being like, dude, like you guys, you don't understand what this is. Can we still take that $30,000 check? <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically what I'm thinking at that moment. I was like, you know, maybe what it, was, it wasn't such a great decision. But uh, so every night there, I'm like, you know what? If I'm here, I'm making the most of this trip. Like I'm not wasting a second. I'm, I'm grinding it out. I'm going to every event. Like I'm... Like, I don't care, nonstop. And I, uh, like, I just go to sleep with my head literally against window. And there'd be like, no, not, not a word of lie, drunk junkies outside the window yelling at each other all night long. It was insane. Um, and this is a long way from, from growing up in Westmount, as you can imagine. Right. Uh, and in the end, so I end up staying there three or four nights. Um, and I'm at events every single day. And just talking to everybody, business cards galore, like just as much networking as I could possibly do and uh, end up making a whole bunch of connections. And in the Bay Area, things move so fast, right? Like you, you're in ed tech. You got to speak to my friend. He has an ed tech company, this investor and speak to this person. Like before I knew it, my like within a day of being there, the rest of my week was scheduled. Oh, there's an event coming up. You should come. You should check this out. There's stuff every night there. And that was totally new to me because in Montreal, the ecosystem is very different, right? Um, it's not startup focused, you know, and, and talking about the business ecosystem in general. Mm -hmm. It's not startup focused. It's um, very, very proprietary, very much, um, you know, legacy families that sort of determine kind of like how things go. And there it's sort of like they just introduce you to anybody in my network's your network. And, and I can get this done a lot faster if, if you know, um, you know, if I introduce you or you introduce me. And so it was great. It was an amazing experience. And I flew back with like a whole Rolodex of, of contacts. And so I started to build, uh, you know, reputation with some of these people and I talked to them from time to time. Um, and, uh, you know, started to realize I was like, okay, I think like, like this is where we need to be spending a bit of our time. So fast forward a couple months, we start the founder fuel program, um, September, and this is like, now we're actually a startup, right? Like the minute you're in one of these accelerators, we got, we got a check for $50,000 cause it's part of what getting into these accelerators is. 
So that was a big thing too, because like at that point we had money and we could hire a couple people. And like when we entered the program, I think we were three or four. We had hired a couple people, sort of like part time, um, and we were growing really quickly. And so that program was three months long. We graduated from that in December, and our growth during that period was incredible. Like we were crushing it. Um, we set a bunch of KPIs, mostly engagement, so like number of sessions that were taking place on the platform. Um, you know, we didn't have a great business model, but we were just trying to prove one thing, and that was chat-based tutoring worked. And so we spent every day, all the time, trying to find you know evidence that students can learn through chat communication. Um, so was there was there a point while you're getting the business off the ground, you're getting into Founder Fuel? Um, but you had this experience being in San Francisco and you saw what the ecosystem there is like. Did you ever think maybe I should start the business over or continue to grow the business over there? Or was did that ever cross your mind? Never really occurred to me. Um, we had an offer from an accelerator in Toronto as well. To, so we, we had the choice to take that offer uh, and, and which would have required to you to move to Toronto. Yeah, we would have mm-hmm. moved there. Uh, same idea, like three months. Um, but we thought that. A, we both want to stay in Montreal. We thought that actually there were more geographic advantages for what we were doing in Montreal than Toronto, which I think is still the case, to be honest. Uh, what Toronto sort of geographic advantage? Cost of living, cost of labor, primarily. Um, you can attract top talent or, or better talent Less competition here. on talent. Exactly. Um, all of those all those elements were crucial um, in our decision-making. Um, and being here, like, already had a network, so that helped quite a bit. Right. Um, yeah, so we you know we, we we decided to keep the business in Montreal, but I think in the back of my mind throughout the whole process, there was definitely an idea that you know we need to have a presence in the Bay Area. Um, we also joined a program called GSV Labs, which was like a virtual membership in, um, in Redwood City. And GSV is uh, Global Silicon Valley is sort of a well known. Um, it's not ed tech exclusively, but they have an ed tech presence, um, ed tech, clean tech, and they sort of help incubate businesses. Um, they don't give you any money and I don't think you really pay anything or maybe you were paying like a couple hundred dollars a month, but it wasn't much. Um, but we got a really good network there and that helped build the network in the Bay Area as well. So we were sort of doing that simultaneously with being in Founder Fuel. So we were really sort of like building Grade Slam and like making Grade Slam far more reputable and recognized. Again, this is like super early days compared to where we are now, but we actually had some traction and we were starting to get recognized. Okay. So you're then, so you join founder fuel, uh, and you experience this, this period of rapid growth. Um, what are the next moves for the company at this point? And, and how do you adjust to this being thrown into this environment where now you have a full-fledged startup, you're in an accelerator, you have that experience, that, that network in San Francisco going back and forth, that's a pretty crazy period of your life as well. Yeah, this was nuts. Again, I'm telling you, like like 2013, 14, 15 was like wild. Like there was a lot of stuff happening. It was a lot of new experiences. Um, and I think I, I learned and grew a lot as an entrepreneur and as a person during that time. So to back to the timeline here, you know, Founder Fuel starts September 2015. It grad, we graduate in December 2015, so, uh, so three months later. Uh, and the big thing in, during all these accelerators, right, is demo day, right? You're preparing for demo day. This is like graduation. You're on stage. You have five minutes to pitch your business, and you got to crush it. 
And the, you know, the, the, the competitive fill comes out in those moments, right? Where it's like, I'm going to destroy this pitch. Like I'm going to make sure this thing is like a one. You spend a ton of time doing pitch prep, right? Basically one month of your three month period is just refining your message for that pitch. Um, and there's, you know, a thousand people in this room and, and, Everything from other startups to some investors. There's you know your friends and family and and everyone's sort of watching you um, deliver this pitch. And we get up and and um, you know I think we just crush it. I'm super happy. We get applause throughout the throughout the presentation, which is like really reassuring. And like the next day, uh, I get a couple calls from investors who are who are interested. A lot of it's sort of nonsense. A lot of service providers, that type of stuff. Who kind of like they, they they try to make it seem like they're interested in your business, but then we had um, these two angels who were like legitimately interested in what we were doing, um, and I sort of knew one, um, you know, through an acquaintance, and um, he knew my father, so there was like sort of the Montreal connection there, and you know, we sat down with these 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 two guys and sort of pitched them on the business, and we're like, you know, this is what we where we see things going. Um, you know, at this point we raised the $50,000 from, um, from real ventures, uh, through founder fuel. And that was it. You know, we had some of these small business loans, but again, all that together maybe equated to like 40 or $50,000 over the previous year and a half. So money was definitely something that we did not have much of. Um, at that point, my credit cards are completely maxed out, but it is what it is. You know, I think, I'm still paying for that with my credit reports, but who cares? I think it's better than student loans. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I was fortunate enough with my businesses and my family to have never had to really accumulate student loans during um, university. Um, also being in, in Quebec, education is not exactly, yeah, it was not like cost prohibitive. And I don't think by any means should people be complaining about how expensive tuition is. I think we have it real easy. If you look at a lot of the, the, uh, colleagues I have in the U.S. who are paying fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year to pay, you know, twenty five hundred or three thousand dollars to get a world class education at McGill. You're getting off easy, right? But anyway, um, so we meet with these investors, and they're like, "Yeah, we're interested in investing, you know, twenty five thousand dollars each." And he said, "Look, you know, to be honest with you, um, and it, you know, I've I've no idea what I'm doing, right? But I said, like, to be honest with you, I think." This is the type of, you know, for us, we're looking for an investment of at least $75,000 per person, right? Sort of just sort of throwing this out there, you know? Um, and they're like, okay, we're in. And we're like, seriously? And they're like, yeah. So like two days later, I mean, they'd done a little due diligence. They called a couple of our you know, clients and they tested the platform. Um, so they, I mean, they knew what they were doing, but this was their first angel investment too. But they really liked what we were doing and they had decided that they were prepared to invest whatever. And you were prepared to give up a piece of the company at that point. Yeah, we were fundraising, um, you know, and that's one of the things they teach you in these accelerators too, is like you need to start fundraising and like constantly be fundraising. And so we, you know, we're there and they're like, okay, we're in. And Roberto and I are kind of like looking at each other, like what is going on right now? And like next day they come back with a check for $150,000. And again, I'm sitting there holding this check, shaking like crazy. Like I literally, I, I, I was supposed to go meet up. It was a Friday. I remember this distinctly. It was in December, probably, you know, toward, like close to Christmas. And I was supposed to go meet up with some friends, you know, uh, to, to catch up after work, like a sankaset type of thing. And I couldn't stop shaking. 
So I actually ended up like showing up an hour or two later because I didn't know what to do. I was like, I was basically having a panic attack. Uh, and like, I get there, I'm like, guys, like you're not gonna understand what just happened. Like we just got like actual investment. And surreal like, moment. It was like, it was surreal. Honestly, it was in- incredible. Like I, I, like even now I can remember that sensation and, um, you know, I think we, um, the investors showed an enormous amount of faith in us, you know, coming in. And um, we also, as part of um, the Founder Fuel program, you're eligible if you're accepted to get uh, um, an investment of 150000 from BDC. So we were sort of trying to, to, the angle that we had was like, well, if we can get you know these these two angels and BDC's hundred fifty thousand. That's three hundred thousand dollars. That's like kind of half of what we said we were raising at the time. I think we said we we're raising seven fifty, something like that, uh, at, at demo day. And um, and so everybody else. So the way it works for this BDC um, investment is that you you know they follow your progress. And I think our cohort um, had. You know, some I thought were strong companies that maybe they didn't see the potential in, and so in the end, we were the only company that actually got that hundred and fifty thousand. So that happened in January. So like, in we went from having zero dollars in our bank account to like three hundred thousand dollars in like February or January. And how much? How much of the company did you give up at that point? So this was done. These were done on um, on one was a safe and one was a convertible note. So there was no, it wasn't a price round. So we didn't know what we were giving up at that time. Um, it would be, it would be dependent on what the the um, valuation was in the next price financing. Mm. Uh, and so that that came shortly after. So uh, you know, this was early 2016, really when you know I, I thought we were in a really good position. And back then we were still like like B two C chat based tutoring, all like you know all those things. We were starting to take off. We had some subscriptions. Um, and meanwhile, like one of the things they teach you when you go through founder fuel or any accelerator is like, you got to start talking to investors constantly. And having been to the Bay area a couple times at this point, I had a bit of a network of investors who I had met through the network there, like, you know, who are tracking the business. Um, but one of the guys, um, who I sort of developed a good relationship with, um, was uh, an investor, but I didn't even know he was an investor. I had no clue. We bonded at an event because we were talking basketball, and I didn't even like it. Didn't even dawn on me, and and, and things happened so fast there. And so we stayed in touch, and um, you know, we were, we would chat about about basketball. We were Warriors fans, and um, one day he sort of emails me. He's like, "Hey, so tell me a little bit more about like Grade Slam and what you guys are doing, and like how you're fundraising." And like at this point, I was like sort of aware that he was an investor a little bit, but like never really dawned on me that like. He could invest in Grade Slam, like I don't know. It's, it seems sort of like imposter syndrome, like it was a, you know, it was not like he could invest in other people, but not us. And mm-hmm. so, um, we go through we go through the pitch, and we had pitched a number of investors at this point. No one was interested, you know, primarily because everyone had been burnt in ed tech. You know, we just hear this over and over again. So we were sort of like, well, we had this money from BDC, we had this money from the angels, like that might be the only money we'll ever raise. And so um, Ned, who is the partner at Birchmere, like instantly loved what we were doing. His family were educators. Um, you know, his mom was a teacher. Like everybody was very much, uh, and his family was very affiliated with education. And conversely to every other fund, they had actually crushed it in EdTech. So they had, had one pretty big exit with a company called Tenmarks, um, which sold to Amazon maybe a year or two earlier. 
and they had um, a couple other businesses in their portfolio that had been growing really fast in ed tech. So um, they actually had never had that bad experience, right? And so it was unique. Anyway, um, we had a conversation with them. We met with their partnership. Meanwhile, we, hit, we were talking to a few other funds at the same time who were pretty interested. But nobody had the experience we felt that Birchmere had. Um, so we received, so now we're at this point, we decide we want to raise a million dollars US. Um, and we had received, uh, I think we got two term sheets or three term sheets uh, from various funds. A couple of them were just like, Complete nonsense. The term sheets were nonsense, or the the funds. Were- no, the term sheets. I mean, it was really one of them in particular was really I won't name who because um, a lot of the audience might know who they are, but it was um, it was real nonsense. Like it was it was what amateur. element of of the term sheet was nonsense? Um, I, I'd say all of it, it was off the market. Clauses. Yeah, it was off market. Uh, and you know, I, again, I'm not I, at this point. I had very little experience in venture investment, but I sort of was had enough business acumen to know what seemed legit and what wasn't. And it was not that they were trying to deceive us at all. That was not the intention. It was the way that they were structured. This was the way that they made investments. Um, and I think a lot of the entrepreneurs who they invest in. Um, don't have a ton of options, and so they take this money, and, and they're they're good investors, um, and so like I, like they 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 ended up actually investing in us later on, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but anyway, we 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 end up taking a term sheet from Birchmere um, and end up closing them around uh, you know in July twenty. I think we we signed the term sheet in April or May and closed in July. Um, million dollars US, uh, 1.6 Canadian once everything was said and done. But we had set out for a million and we ended up getting oversubscribed. Uh, and that was like, all of a sudden, we're like a real company now. If, if you're shaking at a $150,000 check, then you must be... Yeah, it was different. It was very different. Um, I think that the first, you know, that, 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 that the 150000 was um was a bigger moment than closing the other round. I think primarily because the amount of work that goes into putting together one of these rounds is so substantial that like getting the term sheet signed and agreed to was far more like work. And that was a bigger win than once the deal actually closes and the money gets wired to you. Like, You've already been working together with these guys for like a couple months, you know, and like we had, I had you know, a really strong relationship with Ned, um, who was the who was the the partner who invested, and so once the money actually hit the bank account, like we it was already in our heads that this was going to happen, you know. Um, so it was a little bit different, but I think what it did to us, uh, instead of shaking because we were excited, it was more like, hey, now we got to do all of this stuff that we said we were going to do and like actually build it. And so during this whole period, like I'd say from, um, you know, May 2016 till about July, August 2016, we realized the B2C angle has terrible unit economics, right? The customer acquisition costs are incredibly high and the, the, the lifetime value of each customer is very low. So long term, this is not the solution for democratizing education. We're going to just hemorrhage money. Um, so we need to switch it. So I'm like fundraising, closing out this round. And meanwhile, I'm like, okay, we're actually shifting our business from B2C to B2B. So like total shift. And uh, and your investors 
know about that at this point? Yeah, I mean, we were transparent the whole time. And I think at the end of the day, they were like, you guys are the entrepreneurs. Like, you like you know what's best for the business. We trust you. We're investing in you, um, not your business model today. We're investing in the fact that your North Star is democratizing education, right? And we're investing in, in, in you, Phil, and you, Roberto, because we see the potential in your business. And um I think like they were, I definitely was worried uh, in terms of how they'd react, but I think they just, they saw the same thing that we saw and they're like, yeah, there's a huge potential. If you flip this from being B to C where the unit economics don't make sense and start selling to schools, you're like, wait a second, now this makes ton of sense. It's costing you, you know, maybe 10, 15 times more to close a deal, but the deal's worth a hundred times the size. Um, it just like, it completely flipped everything over. And so um, that was really kind of the last big iteration to the business model that we needed. And that would have been, you know, September 2016, I would say, or, or October 2016, where we actually launched the B2B um, with zero customers and zero revenue. So like nothing. It's like two years ago from now. We signed our first client, um, which is Sacred Heart School here in Montreal, um, I want to say, you know, some point around then towards the end of 2016. And uh, really small contract, but we thought we won the lottery again. It was one of those moments where, like, hey, someone's prepared to pay Validation. for this. Validation, exactly. Um, so now the school is paying instead of the, the student paying, but the student still gets access to the platform the same way they would in the previous models. Exactly. So the actual um, experience for the student didn't change very much. Right, like they're they're still interacting through chat communication. They have unlimited access, and it's twenty four seven. The big thing that 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 changed was now the schools buying licenses for all of their students. So every one of their students has access to Grade Slam. So it solves that equity issue on a more profound level because what would happen before is it was still wealthy families that were paying the fifteen dollars a month for a private tutor. Right, they were still the ones that were saying, "Well, I'm paying a hundred bucks an hour for a tour to come to my home. I can just pay an extra fifteen bucks on top of that and get the grade slam." Uh, and so now we shifted it, and the schools were the ones paying for everything. So that was pretty unique, and definitely not. Um, we were advised against it by pretty much everybody. Schools are impossible to sell to. It's a long sales cycle. Uh, you know, basically everything that you can imagine um, discouraged us from doing it, but. I, I've always been one to sort of be a little bit of a contrarian. And if everyone's saying, don't do something, I'll go do it in a sense. So we were like, you know what? If everyone thinks this is too hard to do, it's definitely a huge opportunity because no, like not any competition and it's really tough. Um, where, where do you students, uh, where do schools move around the budget to, to bring this on board? Um, you know, even to this date, I don't think we have like a super definitive response to exactly where it is, primarily because it's really disruptive. It's completely new, it's completely transformative. You're not moving the money from, you know, uh, IT solutions to personalized learning, right? Um, you know, most of our schools and districts that we work with today. They're investing in Grade Slam primarily because they understand that equity is an issue within their district. So, w- walk me through some numbers of Grade Slam today. How many students use the platform? How many schools are enrolled? Um, if you could give revenue numbers, we so again we started with zero dollars of revenue and zero students in 
you know, call it like Q4 2016. Um, you know, we started to get some traction, uh, closed a few deals in the beginning of 2017. Uh, I think by the end of, the, of that school year, we maybe had 20 schools, something like that. You know, still super small. I don't even know if it was 20. It was probably like 12 um, and like maybe a thousand students, you know, like something like that. Uh, and, you know, we were sort of like the beginning, like, okay, is this the right fit? You know, how are we going to do this? But there were so many hurdles and there were so many um, bumps along the way. There was actually good that we grew relatively slow at the beginning because we solved all of these problems with, in, you know, interoperability, integrations, onboarding students in those days. Um, then from 20, from so the, this is like, you know, fast forward June 2017, so the end of that school year to, you know, August or September 2017. So like our first renewal period, like 94% of our, our customers renewed. So we we're like, oh, wow. Like we thought everyone was going to churn. Like we had no idea. And everyone, not only were they renewing, but, you know, our, our net revenue churn was negative. So we were actually get like instead of people leaving, they were adding more accounts or paying more. So we were actually making more money from our existing customers than we had the year before, which is atypical of a lot of businesses, right? If you have a hundred customers one year, well of that cohort of a hundred customers, you might have like 90 the next year, right? So you'll lose 10%. Well, we lost 6%, but we actually gained an enormous amount because they were expanding their contracts. So that was a huge, huge, huge thing for us because we were like, wow, people will pay for this. They're renewing and they're expanding. Like, this is validation. Hey, like, sounds like product market fit, sort of. Um, fast forward last school year, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, like, okay, we can sell to, like, these small one-off schools. We don't really know exactly what we're doing, um, but we see the potential. Like, we, we, we're getting there. We, we're getting to where we want to be. And it wasn't until, you know, beginning of 2018, really, where we're like, okay, like this is like, we, we think we know what we're doing. Um, and then beginning of 2018, starting to run out a little bit of money. Um, at this point, we're probably working with, you know, somewhere around 70 or 80,000 students. So we've grown a lot, right? It's, 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 it's moving quickly. Um, and we're starting to run out of money. And so we go back to our investors and we say, Hey, we think we want to start fundraising, you know, for a series a, um, revenue numbers are pretty good. I won't say exactly what they were, but you know, was, uh, we were tracking really well. And again, we'd started at zero like a year earlier, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, everything was nice growth and the curve looked wonderful. Um, and we went, went to our investors. We said, we're, we're thinking of, um, of raising some more money. This is like beginning 2018. Um, so not too long ago. And, uh, they saw, you know, our existing investors all said like, yeah, we're in. Um, and so at the same time as that's happening, our customer, we're getting like tons and tons and tons of deals closing, like it's going nuts. And we're like, okay, well, you know, do we really want to spend all of our time and resources fundraising? Or maybe we close a small round with our existing investors, like a bridge or whatever, you know, you want to call it. Um, and, like let our customers fund the business. And so that's what we did. We took a step back and we said, you know, we've got all this, you know, we've, we, we, we've got all this potential sitting here. Let's close these deals. Um, and we actually hired uh, a sales consultant to help us like manage the process and like optimize our sales 
going forward. So we, we brought this guy, John Hoppenheim in, who's a sales consultant, amazing. He really crushes it. And he worked with our team for, you know, he'd come in and out for like you know a week or two here, a week or two there, and built this process. And then the guys started, they were just killing it. They are humming. Um, and then fast forward, we went about from, you know, call it April 2018 till August 2018, revenues tripled. And we were like on fire. And so then we started to talk fundraising and like that's sort of where we got to today where, you know, financially the business is in tremendous health. Um, We have a ton of interest from from funds, uh, but now we have a sales process that's driving revenue and things are humming. So um, we we work with about 150,000 students now uh, and like the business is just completely transformed in like eight months. And that's the ideal scenario, right? That you could finance the business just internally without going to external capital. Yeah, as as customer as funded is the you know the the best funders. Um, and for us, I think like we we felt like we had two choices. Um, you know, in you know April twenty eighteen, to either um, focus more on fundraising the traditional route with venture funds or let the customers do it. And it was, you know, we remember talking about with our existing investors and talking about it with, uh, Roberto. And we just said, you know, let's just let the customers do this. If if we're right and we're actually onto something, they're going to, you know, they're going to drive revenue and that'll be enough. Uh, that's what we did. I want to ask you about being a non-technical co-founder in a technical business how and I know you have your your technical co-founder, which helps on a lot of that. But how did you personally navigate the whole tech side of of the business? For me, I had some background in coding. I'd taken some coding classes. I was familiar with CSS and HTML, but at a very superficial level, like we're talking basics. So I had a little bit of an idea what was going on. And when they were, you know, when when Roberto would talk about what he's developing, like he could have that conversation with me. Um, in terms of like the languages and the architecture, like I got it. You know, I would do the wireframing for the most part myself. Um, so like the flow and some of the user experience in the early days, like that was my job um, because like I, I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of it. Um, but I mean, you need to have a technical co-founder. You need to have somebody who, and, and I think we're lucky because, um, you know, I definitely have the the business side, and I've spent a lot of my time like honing those skills. But I do understand the the software and technical side, you know, a little bit at least. And I think Roberto um, understands the technical side really well, and he also has great business acumen. So you you know, we kind of complement each other pretty well. Nobody's fully in the dark, um, you know. But when we're negotiating stuff, typically, you know, I'll, I'll handle that. When we're planning out tech infrastructure or, or rollouts or product enhancements, um, you know, he handles that. But you know, he's probably equally as strong in most domains as I am. If I were to come back from the future and tell you Great Slam is a huge success five years from now, what does that success look like to you? So. Our North Star has never changed, and I don't think ever will, right? This idea of democratizing education and delivering true educational equity is what drives every person in this company every single day. I fundamentally believe that what we're doing is something that every single school in North America and around the world is going to need. Personalization is here to stay. You know, the antiquated business model of schools where you have one teacher in front of 30 students, that's gone. Right, like that, we know 
That, that's how we need to educate everybody 200 years ago when that model started. What's happening now is being driven by Great Slam. You know, one-to-one support, personalization, you know, truly delivering the same learning experience to every single student. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in a wealthy neighborhood or an impoverished one. You should have the same access to educational resources as everybody else. And in my eyes, you know, you're talking five years from now, to what degree will that have penetrated the entire earth? I don't know. But I fundamentally believe that every single school and every single student will be learning from Grade Slam or a platform similar to that where you have a personalization. And, and if we maintain that focus in terms of educational equity, then we're going to get there, right? Because every school is moving in that direction. You know, Not everyone is necessarily there today, but the customers that we do have, they are. And there's more and more and more of them every day. Phil Cutler, co-founder and CEO of GradeSlam. To discover more startup founders and companies in Montreal, visit montrealstartups.ca.